Hello, this is Leslie Garfield-Tenzer, and this is Law to Fact. Today we are talking about evidence. Before we get started, a few disclaimers. First, always remember you take the professor, not the course. So if this is not your professor, then keep in mind your professor may talk about things that are not discussed on our podcast or vice versa. Second, this is just intended as an overview. We don't necessarily get in the nitty-gritty. In this episode, I speak with Professor Dennis McLaughlin of Seton Hall. Spend five minutes in the cafeteria with Mr. McLaughlin, and you'll see just how popular he is. Every student who walked in knew him, and he knew something about each one of them. But I realized after spending time with him just why he's so popular. He really understands the law and really understands how to explain it. I struggled with evidence in law school, and I kind of struggled with it again when I met with him. But after spending some time with him, I understand today's topic, which is how to tell when a statement is hearsay or rather, how to tell when a statement is being offered for the truth of the matter asserted. Today, I'd love to talk with you about hearsay. I know you teach evidence, you're beloved by all the students, and I guess what I'd like to talk to you about is to get your opinion on what are the most difficult concepts of hearsay, and maybe we'll talk through them or walk me through them a little bit. Sure. So the definition of hearsay that a lot of people use is that it's an out-of-court statement that's offered for the truth of the matter asserted. And one of the first things I explain to students is that the phrase out-of-court statement is not exactly what you think it means. That it really is whenever a witness is attempting to repeat a previously made statement for the truth of the matter asserted. And that previously made statement could have been made in a courtroom at an earlier time, could have been made under oath, It could have been made under a number of circumstances, but it's whenever a witness is attempting to repeat a previously made statement. So So, that, yes. So the statement can be at a barbershop too, right? It doesn't have to be one that's in court. It could be on a playground. It could be at a barbershop. It's a statement that was overheard and brought into the courtroom. Well, that would be one aspect of it, but it would also be hearsay if I was attempting to repeat my own previously made statement. Hmm that whenever a witness attempts to repeat a previously made statement, whether the statement is that person's statement or some other person's statement, and that statement is being offered for the truth of the matter asserted, that that potentially raises a hearsay issue. And what I then explain to students is that the most difficult part of that is when is a statement offered for the truth of what's asserted in the statement. Now, this is something that I never understood when I was a law student and had evidence. And, of course, that was the same phrase that was used at that time, even though I learned evidence under the common law rules because the federal rules of evidence were only adopted in 1975. Hmm. But... The phrase has always been used, a statement offered for the truth of the matter asserted. And what I didn't understand was that doesn't every witness that comes into the courtroom raise their right hand and swear or affirm 
that the testimony they're about to give shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And it said to me, well, how can a statement not be offered for its truth when everyone is saying, I'm telling you the truth? So when is a statement not hearsay? When you're offering it as a lie? <laughs> and that never made any sense to me at all. And that's the difficult concept, and that's what you have to use logic to understand what is the statement exactly offered to prove. And the easiest way is to offer some examples, that if a person were to have to prove that particular papers had been filed with the court, and you said, well, my proof of this is that Mr. Smith said to me, quote, I filed the necessary papers with the court. Now, if you were offering that previously made statement by Mr. Smith to prove that, in fact, the papers were, in fact, filed with the court, well, that would be offering the statement for the truth of the matter asserted. But let's say Mr. Smith is an attorney and you're Mr. Smith's client and Mr. Smith is lying to you. And the papers have not been filed with the court. But because Mr. Smith is a lawyer, your lawyer, you believe Mr. Smith and you take no action. And then after a year, you suddenly realize this is a long time that I haven't heard anything from the court. And Mr. Smith keeps telling me, oh, I filed the papers. We'll be hearing very soon. And then suddenly you decide to go to another lawyer and that lawyer researches at the courthouse and finds out that the papers were never filed. Okay. And now you want to use this lawyer to file a motion to reopen the case. Well, it just so happens that you have a limited time to do that after a case has been dismissed. And this is actually a case that I handled myself. And when I brought the motion, I put on my client and she started to testify about what her attorney had told her. What her first attorney had told her. What her attorney had told her, mm -hmm. that my attorney told me the papers had been filed. And the judge, on his own, said, Mr. McLaughlin, all of this testimony by your client is hearsay. And I had to quickly explain, Judge, it's not hearsay. I'm not offering the statement, I filed the necessary papers with the court, to prove that the papers were filed with the court, I'm offering it to explain why my client waited 12 months to bring this motion to reopen the case because the papers had never been filed and the client's case had been dismissed 12 months earlier by the court. So the identical words, depending on what the statement is offered to prove, could be a hearsay offer or could be a non-hearsay offer, and that requires a logical interpretation of what point are you trying to make, and is this previously made statement relevant to prove my point, even if the statement is substantively false. So can I just take a step back for a second? Some hearsay is not, generally hearsay is not allowed in a court unless it falls onto one of the hearsay exception rules, correct? Right, and we're not talking about the hearsay exceptions. No. We're talking about statements that don't even qualify to be hearsay. Okay.
What's the theory behind preventing hearsay into the courtroom? Well, the theory behind it is that there's a preference for live testimony, that rather than repeating what was said at some earlier time, that they would prefer live witnesses to come in. They would rather that the attorney came in, the declarant came into court and said, yes, this is what happened, rather than having uh, someone else repeat a person. It's mostly the preference for live witness firsthand testimony. All right, so that makes sense. So now, all right, so we have this hearsay testimony, and the same words can either be used to prove the truth of the matter asserted or not to prove the truth of the matter asserted. Correct. If they're used to prove the truth of the matter asserted, what happens next? Well, if they're offered to prove the truth of the matter asserted, then it's hearsay. Right. And it would be inadmissible unless there was a hearsay exception. We don't like hearsay, and that's why we have a rule that says that hearsay is not admissible unless it's within one of the hearsay exceptions. And then the hearsay exceptions are generally based on the fact that although we don't like hearsay, there are certain situations when there's a certain indicia of trustworthiness or reliability about the circumstances under which the statement was made, and therefore, even though it is hearsay, we will allow it in as substantive evidence for the truth of the matter asserted. An example would be a statement that someone made for the purposes of medical diagnosis or treatment. A doctor would be able to say that a patient said to her that the patient was feeling pain in their right knee. And even though the doctor would be repeating a previously made statement uh, by a declarant, here the declarant would be the patient, and the statement would be, uh, I am experiencing pain in my right knee, offered to prove that the declarant speaking was experiencing pain in their right knee. The notion would be that, well, it's hearsay, but we think that there's an indicia of trustworthiness that if a person is speaking to a doctor in this instance for the purpose of being medically diagnosed and treated, that you're not going to tell the doctor that it's your left knee that hurts. You're going to tell the doctor that your right knee hurts. Could the person be lying? They could be. All evidence could be fabricated, but with respect to a hearsay objection, they're willing to look the other way on this particular uh, hearsay offer and allow it under the exception for statements that were made for purposes of medical diagnosis or treatment. So that, so now I, that makes sense because the, basically what the court is saying, what the federal rules are saying, is that we want to make sure that anything that comes into court is as honest and trustworthy as we can guarantee that it is. Yes. And so if we are, if there's certain language or certain statements that are made out of court... They're already a little suspect. Is that fair to say? Well, yes. But also, they could have been made in a court hearing at an earlier time. Right. And even repeating that, you need a hearsay exception to get those statements in. Because otherwise, there's this belief that those words are not trustworthy. And if you're using them to prove an issue that you need to win the case, then you're basically using 
non-trustworthy language or non-trustworthy statements, better way to say it, and that's not fair, and that may confuse the trier of fact, and that may create an unfair, biased decision on the part of the jury. Is that a correct statement? It's correct in part, but when we offer a statement not for its substantive internal truth, it's still being offered to prove a particular point. Right. Um, let me give you an example of a case um, that a woman was killed in a bus accident, and her husband brought a wrongful death action. And as part of the wrongful death action, the husband said, I should be compensated for the loss of loving companionship of my wife. And the defendant company wanted to introduce statements that the deceased wife had said before she died about her husband. Probably not flattering statements. And the statements were, (laughs) my husband treats me with utter cruelty Mm -hmm. and disrespect. And if the statement was being offered to prove that her husband, in fact, treated her with other disrespect and cruelty, then the statement would have been hearsay. But the defendant was trying to prove that a woman that would make those statements about her husband, it says something about what the woman feels about her husband, even if the statement is substantively false. That in other words, even if her husband really was very kind and very respectful, if in her mind she felt that he was disrespectful to her and cruel to her, it's very likely that that was not a loving relationship right. and, that she, and that the loss of her love and companionship is really not what the husband is making it out to be. And that's an important issue in the case right? because the husband could want $500,000 for the loss of loving companionship Mm -hmm. of his best friend. Well, the defendant company wants to show she wasn't his best friend. She didn't love him and she did not like him. So that we would be offering her previously made statement to prove a substantive point, but I am not offering her previously made statement, my husband is cruel, to prove that her husband is cruel. I'm just offering it to prove that the words were truly spoken. And that is all a witness says when they they take the stand, when they say, I swear or affirm that the testimony I'm about to give is the truth, they're just meaning I heard the, the woman truly say these words. Just because I'm saying she truly said these words, that doesn't mean I'm offering the words for their internal substantive truth. I'm just offering it that those words were truly said. And if those words were truly said, even if the words are substantively false, if they were truly said by the woman who died, it tells us something about what she thought about her husband. And that is a legitimate issue in the case because if she didn't love her husband, then it wasn't a loving relationship. And maybe his loss of companionship claim is worth $5 and not $500,000. 
That, that's perfect because that really shows the difference between the concept of the truth of the matter asserted and not the truth of the matter asserted. So yes. if they were restating the sentence, my husband was cruel to me, that would not be admissible under hearsay if they were trying to prove her husband was cruel to her. Correct. But they were not trying to prove her husband Correct. was cruel to her. They were trying to prove maybe this wasn't right. a marriage, and so it's not hearsay because they're using it for something other than... The truth the tr- of the matter asserted. Exa- got and, it. and that's how I explain to the difference to the students that I say, I wish this was explained to me 46 years ago when I had evidence in 1972 that they're using the word truth in two different meanings. When the witness says, I solemnly swear or affirm that the testimony I'm about to give is the truth and nothing but the truth, they're just meaning that what they're going to tell you, they truly saw, they truly heard. Whereas in the hearsay definition, it's using truth in a different sense. Are you offering a previously made statement which asserts something? Are you offering it to prove not that it was truly said, but the substantive truth of what is asserted in the statement? And in that situation, I'm not offering it to prove that the husband is, in fact, cruel to her. I'm just offering it to show that, truthfully, those words were said. And in this context, it makes a legitimate, relevant point in the case to show the feeling that the woman had towards her husband because he has raised the issue that his wife loved him and the loss of her love and companionship is worth financial compensation to him. That makes that makes perfect sense. And that, that's, that's interesting to look at truth for two different ways. So I guess my next question to you would be, let's say someone is charged with deciding whether a statement's hearsay or not. The judge would have to decide. That. Right. But let's say a student is charged with oh, deciding okay. that. <laughs> so let's say a student gets a fact pattern. We'll take the fact pattern of this woman who was yes. hit by a bus. And there was a statement, and she makes the statement that um, my husband was cruel and we have a loveless marriage, right? And now the student has to decide whether that statement is admissible because it's not hearsay or is not admissible because it is hearsay and doesn't fall within some of the exceptions. Correct. What would a student do? How would, how would you analyze that? The student needs to... Uh, know that a statement is not hearsay or not hearsay in the abstract. Everything is key to what is the statement offered to prove. That when I teach the students hearsay, I end with a hypothetical where a person has made a particular statement. And I have the the person making the same statement six times, Hmm. all in a different context, and every one of them has a different answer as to whether or not the identical words spoken by the identical person in one context can be a non-hearsay offer as a verbal object, a verbal act, a prior inconsistent statement, circumstantial evidence of state of mind, effect on the listener, or hearsay. Hmm. Those are the ones that I teach them 
and I use the identical words. Let me just give you one example. (laughs) What are the words? Let, Let me give you one example. Okay. But let's say that Mr. Smith um, was heard by you to say all people from Seton Hall Law School are liars and cheats. Okay. That's the statement. Well, defamation from the torts professor. Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, that would make make it a verbal act. Right. Okay. So um, let's say Mr. Smith is a witness in a case and you're a Seton Hall Law student as the plaintiff in the case. And now Mr. Smith testifies against you. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things you would like to do is impeach Mr. Smith. So now you call witness B to the stand. And you say to witness B, have you ever had a conversation with Mr. Smith, the witness that just testified? Yes, I have. Did you ever say anything about people from Seton Hall? Yes, he did. What did he say? He said, all people from Seton Hall are liars and cheats. Well, in that situation, you would ask, am I offering that previously made statement by our declarant, Mr. Smith, to prove, in fact, that all people from Seton Hall are liars and cheats? And the answer would be no. And would it be relevant to show something else other than its substantive truth? Well, yes, that if he walks around saying to people, all people from Seton Hall are liars and cheats, that means he has a certain animus against people from Seton Hall, and maybe he's a biased witness and the jury should know that. But now suppose that you're a witness in the case, and now the other side wants to impeach you, and they want to impeach you because you're a Seton Hall law student. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Smith has said that all people from Seton Hall are liars and cheats. Well, if all people from Seton Hall are liars and cheats, and you're a person from Seton Hall, well, then the jury should know that you're a liar. Right. And I should be able to impeach you. But now, the identical witness testifying that Mr. Smith said at an earlier time, all people from Seton Hall are liars and cheats. Now, it's the identical statement, the identical witness, Mr. B, the identical declarant, Mr. Smith, and Mr. Smith making the identical statement, but now, and offered to impeach the witness, but now the witness is you, and now it only makes my point to impeach you as a liar if the statement by Mr. Smith is in fact substantively true. Okay. That he made the statement, all people from Seton Hall are liars and cheats, and I offer that to prove the truth of the matter asserted, which is that all people from Seton Hall are liars and cheats, and then that makes my point that because you're from Seton Hall and all people from Seton Hall are liars and cheats, that means that you're a liar and a cheat, and the jury should know that in assessing your credibility. So there's the identical statement, the identical declarant, the identical witness. In one situation, it's hearsay. In another situation, it's not. And uh, you could think of another situation where the uh, uh, person uh, said, all people from Seton Hall are liars and cheats, and you felt that that was defamatory. Well, then I'm not offering it to prove that all people from Seton Hall are liars and cheats. I'm just offering it to prove that those words were truly spoken by Mr. Smith 
And when Mr. Smith, if Mr. Smith truly said that, then those words, assuming that they're false, I can prove that they're false, constitute the tort of defamation. Right. So we would call that a verbal act. Another could be that I was accused of discrimination against Mr. Smith. And, and, and Mr. Smith said, you don't associate with me. You don't mm-hmm. talk to me. Mm-hmm. You don't do anything with me. And you'd say, well, I don't, I'm not doing that because of your gender. I'm not doing that because of your ethnicity. I'm doing that because you walked around saying all people from Seton Hall are liars and cheats, and I'm from Seton Hall, and I don't feel like associating with someone who feels that way about me. Well, again, it's the same declarant, Mr. Smith, saying all people from Seton Hall are liars and cheats, and everything turns on what is the statement offered to prove, and you can't answer that out of context. It depends on context. What are the issues in the case? Are you trying to impeach the credibility of the witness? Are are you trying to explain your behavior? Are you trying to establish a cause of action under a legal principle? What is it that you're trying to prove and that it is not how it's said, it is not what is said, it is what is that previously made statement offered to prove? And in order to prove that point, does the statement have to be substantively true or does it make my point, even if the statement is substantively false, as so long as the statement was truly said? So on an example, a student has to first read the fact pattern and understand why the statement is being made. What is the purpose? So step one is to read the... Why is the statement being offered offered, in evidence? Offered into evidence, yes, yes. Yes. Okay, so step one would be to read the fact pattern, which is always step one, obviously. Right. But step one is to figure out what is the purpose of the statement? What is it being used to prove? And you can't figure out what it's being used to prove until you see why the plaintiff or defendant is offering this statement. Correct. All right, so can you just say one, two, three, what students should look for if they're looking for a hearsay question on an exam? Absolutely. Thank you. That you would first ask, is someone in the case about to testify to a previously made statement? Okay. Whether it's a previously made statement by the witness Mm -hmm. or a previously made statement by some other declarant. It doesn't matter who the declarant is. Whenever a witness is attempting to repeat a previously made statement, okay. that we have a hearsay issue. Okay. Second question: What does the previously made statement assert? And that's the phrase, the matter asserted. That we look to see: Is it offered for the truth of the matter asserted? So. The second step is, well, what does the statement assert? Right. That the statement asserts something. I'm tired. I'm happy. I'm sick. My wife beats me. My wife is wonderful. Uh, I'm a student at Seton Hall Law School. I love being a lawyer. I mean, the statement could say it's going to rain tomorrow. Right. It's going to snow tomorrow. The statement asserts something. Okay. Then the third question is, that I have a previously made statement, 
question number one. Question number two, what is the previously made statement? What is it assert? And then the biggest one is the third one. What are you offering the previously made statement to prove? Am I offering it to prove that the person who made the statement, it's going to snow tomorrow, to prove that it is going to snow tomorrow? Or are you offering it to prove something else? That it could be that the statement was, it's going to snow tomorrow, and therefore I'm going to stay home. That I'm just offering it not to prove that it is going to snow or that uh, uh, I did stay home, but you're just, uh, that's not a good one. So we'll that's fine. Maybe we'll edit, we'll edit, that, we'll edit that up. But so, you just said So, so, so the yeah. second question, and then the third question, of course, that, well, what is the statement that was asserted? What is it offered to prove? And going back to the example is the statement, my husband treats me with utter disrespect and cruelty. Are you offering it to prove the truth of the matter asserted that he does in fact treat her with utter disrespect and cruelty, or are you offering it to prove something else? The something else being that a woman who says such a statement about her husband, it says something about her feeling about the, the uh, uh, quality of the relationship that she has with her husband. And that is the key. Are we offering a previously made statement into evidence? What does the previously made statement assert? And am I offering it for the truth of the matter that is asserted in that statement? Or is the statement relevant to make a point for my case, even if the statement internally is substantively false, provided the words were truly spoken? Perfect. Wonderful. Thank you so much. We're done. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So that's my discussion with Professor Dennis McLaughlin. As you can see, I kind of struggled in the beginning, but I had what I like to call my Oprah aha moment. And I hope this helps you have that too. And that's all for now. Thanks to www.bensound.com for the music. We'll see you next time on Lot of Fact.